Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. I do have to say I haven't been on Facebook much lately. I've uh, kind of given myself a break from it. Uh, I've switched over to Twitter. (laughs) Um, So I will try and do some um, science-based tweeting from uh, the evidence-based radio Twitter feed. Um, I will try and move over to that because I haven't been doing much with the social media in the last couple of weeks. Um, Of course, we're we're all still, I think, uh, recovering from the holidays a little bit. I've been away several weekends. So um, yeah. But I do like to do things during the week, so I will try and get back to that. Um, And I think I should be able to uh, connect my Twitter to my Facebook page. I think I have enough technological know-how to do that. Okay, so I do think that it is only fair that we start tonight with an update on the new virus in China. Now, it seems that initial reports were unfortunately too good to be true, and the virus has not only killed at least 26 people, but we can now positively confirm person-to-person transmission with at least 15 healthcare workers having been infected during the initial round of um, patients coming in. The virus has been labeled 2019-NCOV, which basically means 2019 novel coronavirus for now. Um, Obviously, it will probably get a different name later on, but for now, that's what it's being uh, called until they decide what they want to call it. Um, For instance, SARS, MERS, um, Ebola, They all have actual names now. Some of them are descriptive. Um, Ebola comes from a river near where the first outbreaks were uh, found. So I don't know exactly what it will be called yet. We can confirm that it has infected almost 900 people, uh, at least officially. Uh, There may be more, and I know that a lot of people are worried about it, but, um, you know, we can only go with the information that we have. There have been confirmed cases in Thailand, Vietnam, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, and the U.S. I think there might also be one in Singapore. Um, But again, it's not yet reached the level of global pandemic. The CDC specifically met yesterday and said that they do not think that this is yet something that we have to worry about as a global pandemic. So it's too early to actually start, you know, stockpiling uh, water and uh, canned goods yet. And so, you know, there are obviously problems, though. One of the big issues is that Wuhan, where the virus emerged, is a huge city of 11 million people and a hub for travel generally. Um, And so it's also hard when uh, we know, for instance, that China has downplayed other outbreaks such as SARS, um, that they're not 
great about transparency when it comes to this sort of thing. But as far as we can tell at the moment, they have been cooperating and they have been um, offering international um, access to the genomes of the virus and things like that. Um, Earlier in the week, it was reported that 72% of those infected were over 40 and that two-thirds were male. I'm not sure if that's held uh, so uh, this late into the week. I couldn't find any new numbers yet, um, though by though the new the 26 and 900 are um, pretty much um, they are valid as of this morning. And so it's still, relatively contained. And so again, no one should be panicking yet. Uh, Many of those who have died had underlying health conditions. So um, as with any kind of respiratory issue, if you already are sick, and then you add a respiratory issue that uh, actually Uh, decreases the amount of oxygen you're getting to your body, that can be a really serious problem. Um, And in fact, a lot of people who have other medical issues end up dying of pneumonias. Um, People with all sorts of autoimmune diseases, often it's actually pneumonia that kills them, not the actual disease that they have. Um, And we've seen that in AIDS and other um, autoimmune diseases. And so, yeah, it's, it's a serious thing, but it is not yet a cause for worldwide panic. Now, some researchers believed, uh, earlier this week and were saying that they thought that it might have originated in snakes. Uh, we know that the virus, uh, as I mentioned last week has commonalities with bat coronavirus, but also with an unknown vector. And so some have suggested it's snakes, which would make sense as snakes are a staple of Chinese market markets for both food and alternative medicine. Um, and, you know, eating snake is no more weird than eating eel or eating any of a number of other things that people eat. So, you know, we might not think of eating snake all that much, but I know there are people in America who do eat snake, like rattlesnake and things like that. Um, so it's not that out of the ordinary. Now, there are other uh, researchers who don't think that that is the case, that they think that the vector is still at large. And so we still have work to do on that. Now, the virus seems to, as I mentioned, have gone through a process of recombination between um, what may have been a bat coronavirus and something else. And so when the two different strains are able to mix, they will become a new strain and that can often lead viruses to develop new abilities and especially the ability to infect new hosts. And so of course this outbreak does remind people of SARS, uh, especially that happened between 2002 and 2003 because it was again centered in China. Um, But it's definitely doesn't yet have the same level of uh, mortality rate. It has a lower mortality rate so far. So we're not, um, again, no need to really, really panic. Um, Airports in several countries have set up thermal scanning posts uh, to help catch potential carriers. And I know that many people have been uh, been screened. Many of them have um, tested not 
uh, tested unpositively, I guess, um, have been shown to not have the disease. So, um, you know, anybody coming from uh, China at this point is, I think, people are probably a little suspect of, but a lot of people have been um, looked at, and it turns out that they're perfectly fine. Of course, one of the big things you might have heard of is that it is the season of Chinese Lunar New Year, and so uh, hundreds of millions of people are generally traveling within the country, um, with millions more traveling outside of the country. And so because of that, uh, as of Wednesday, the Chinese government announced a virtual quarantine of the entire city, with public transportation being temporarily halted. Uh, and that started Thursday morning. Uh, all flights and trains out of the city were canceled. At this point, I think they actually have uh, real roadblocks put up so that no one can get out of the city. And um, even though that seems kind of scary, it's actually probably a fairly good idea to keep it from moving into other parts of this country that is extremely uh, densely populated in parts of it. And so even though it seems very draconian and scary, they're actually doing what would be considered best practices for a outbreak of a novel um, virus. Now, as far as the American patients, there are one. There's one in Washington State, uh, and there is a newly confirmed one in Chicago. Uh, both had recently returned from Wuhan, and uh, they are reportedly in either stable or good condition. So um, that's very good. And of course, screening places have been set up in a bunch of the international airports in America, San Francisco, L.A., um, Atlanta, O'Hare, JFK. So um, yeah, I definitely think that right now I don't see too much worry for people in the U.S. Uh, unless you have been traveling in the area of Wuhan or know someone who has. Um, but obviously, this is a developing story. Just last week, I wasn't worried about the virus at all. Um, but, you know, we should move on and talk about other stories uh, because we'll just have to wait and see how things develop. Um, again, remember that neither SARS nor MERS caused widespread death in the United States, at least. Um, not that it didn't cause deaths otherwise. Other in other places, and not that that should be uh, discounted, but um, we do have the advantage of having um, geographic isolation, even though in the 21st century, with all of the international travel, that's not nearly as uh, easy to say these days. But it seems that so far, we're doing a pretty good job of making sure that people um, who are coming into the country from that area are being screened and that we know um, that we need to be out on the look. We need to be on the lookout. Okay, so let's move on and talk about other things. So first I want to talk about new species of walking shark to uh, sort of cleanse our palate. Um, researchers have spent the last 12 years studying so-called walking sharks and have announced the discovery of four new species. The work is published in the journal Marine and Freshwater Research. The sharks are found between Northern Australia and New Guinea in tropical waters. 
Now they're small and they're not a danger to humans in any way. They won't be walking onto the beach and eating anyone, so no worries. They're actually really cute, honestly. At less than a meter, or 3.3 feet, long on average, walking sharks present no threat to people, says biologist Christine Dungeon from the University of Queensland in Australia, but their ability to withstand low oxygen environments and walk on their fins gives them a remarkable edge over their prey of small crustaceans and mollusks. Now, the new species belong to the genus Hemicyclium, and are linked to five existing members of the group through genetic analyses of tissue samples uh, that were gathered during from live-caught animals throughout the 12 years of the study. Now, they were able to map the connections between the species using mitochondrial DNA, which is passed down through the maternal line. The analysis found that the new animal's DNA compared most closely to other members of the Hemicyclium genus, which has which originated in the late Cretaceous period, some 66 to 100 million years ago. Now, given the fact that they've been around for a for such a long time, and that they're found in international waters that have really only been recently surveyed, um, there's no real clear answer right now for why there are so many distinct species of the fish. Um, and so, uh, both the fact that, you know, this is a place that is very large and, um, sort of not well known, but also they've had a lot of time. So we don't quite know yet because we haven't had enough time to study it. It can be challenging to identify the forces that drive speciation in marine environments for organisms that are capable of widespread dispersal because their contemporary distributions often belie the historical processes that we that were responsible for their initial diversification, the authors explained in their paper. Now, the team does have some suggestions for how it may have happened. Now, one of the most common forms of speciation is through geographic isolation. It's kind of hard to show geographic isolation in water, um, in, you know, bodies of water that are all connected to one another, but you can actually have uh, various parts that are inhabited by different animals. There could be differences in the other animals that are available there. There could be uh, currents that make one part warmer or colder. There are all there are definitely ways in which uh, different regions of the ocean can be different from others. And so the researchers believe that they may have evolved new traits as the area around them changed and moved. Data suggests the new species evolved after the sharks moved away from their original population, became genetically isolated in new areas, and developed into new species, Dungeon said. They may have moved by swimming or walking on their fins, but it's also possible they, quote-unquote, hitched a ride on reefs moving westward across the top of New Guinea about two million years ago. Now, the team suspects that there are even more new species waiting to be found in this corner of the ocean. And so let us hope they're allowed to continue to grow and thrive without disturbance. And um, I do recommend looking at some pictures of them because they are cute. Um, I think most sharks are cute. Uh, so if you don't agree with that, you may not agree with me, but 
they're just, you know, they're little guys and they've got, um, you know, they've got some really nice modeled skin, most of them. And they're just, they're cute. Um, if you like sort of marine animals. And so, uh, sharks, of course, are a fairly ancient animal. So now we're going to talk about really ancient animals. Uh, the rest of tonight, we are going to spend in the deep past. <laughs> so that was your kind of taste of things that are still around. And um, the, the last one of the couple of the last ones um, do have things that are still around kind of tied to them. But um, we are going to be talking mostly about the past from now on. And so let's start off with a newly discovered scorpion dating to the early Silurian period, some 437.5 to 436.5 million years ago. And so it is giving researchers a new look at how the first arachnids developed and how animals first adapted to terrestrial habitats. The research, published in Scientific Reports, describes the new Scorpio, Pario Scorpio Venerator, um, or Venator, excuse me, which is uh, Latin for Progenitor Scorpion Hunter. And so it is now the oldest known scorpion to have been found. The previous record holder belonged to a species found in Scotland from around 434 million years ago. Now, of course, these are far too old to uh, be dated using carbon dating. And so the specimens were dating using a uh, form of dating called biostratigraphy. And so that entails taking a look for certain fossils that have a known age, uh, a sort of known age range, and seeing if they're present in the same strata as the specimen being dated. Now, of course, this is one of those things, just as an aside, where people uh, sometimes talk about how, you know, oh, scientists date things by looking at other things that are in there, and they don't have any real understanding of how to date things, um, because all they're doing is dating one animal by another animal. But the thing is, is that we have other ways of dating rocks as well. It depends on the rock formation. So you might find these fossils in strata that are able to be dated by other nuclear um, dating methods. And so then when you have them in places that don't have that, you can still have a very good degree of certainty that they're in the same age range. And it's just an easier way to do it than to have to go and do nuclear testing of, um, you know, crystals and things like that. You can just say, oh, we already know that these fossils are found in this uh, strata. So having found another fossil that goes with those fossils means almost certainly that they're in the same strata. And it's just, frankly, it's just easier. <laughs> and it is not um, sort of, um, it's not a false way to date things. We examined specific microfossils, which occur in small time ranges, explained Andrew Wendruff. This allows us to confidently compare the age of this scorpion with the previous oldest one. And so in this case, they looked for conodont microfossils, which are extinct eel-like animals, uh, very small ones though, that are known from, again, specific short periods of geologic history. 
Now, the current species of scorpion is described from two fossils, which were form, found in a formation that was once a shallow tropical sea. It would have lived in the same habitat as trilobites, cephalopods, worms, and other arthropods. So this, again, is the time of trilobites. We're in the deep, deep past here. Um, remember, this is one of the first animals to move on to land. And so while P. venator would have largely lived underwater, it was capable of spending time on land. It's now known as one of the earliest animal fossils that had the capability to breathe on land. And so basically scorpions in general were one of the first animals to move from the sea to the land. Um, and there's a famous um, uh, animation of sort of the beginning of the earth. Um, and I cannot remember what it was. And I tried to find it this afternoon. I just couldn't find it offhand. Um, and I remember watching it. I remember seeing these giant scorpion-like animals uh, were one of the first to emerge from the sea. And so it just totally brought me back to that. Um, these scorpions with these big compound eyes, and they were bright yellow, if I remember right. But anyways, I will try and find that and link to it. And so uh, because they were one of those first things to do that, finding these fossils uh, gives us insight into just how it happened. Now, again, uh, this is a sort of common theme that I talk about a lot uh, on this show. So the fossils were actually found back in 1985 in Wisconsin, but sat untouched at the University of Wisconsin for nearly 35 years until paleontologist Lauren Babcock from Ohio State University and uh, the aforementioned Andrew Wendruff from Otterbein University decided to take a closer look. And uh, Wendruff actually notes that he didn't even know there were scorpions in the batch of fossils that were in these sort of drawers just in the back of a storeroom somewhere. And so the researchers used microscopy and high-resolution imagery to examine the specimens, which are just under an inch long. So these are not big guys. These are little guys. And what they found was, frankly, rather remarkable. Uh, they could see that the creature had already developed a stinger on the tip of the tail. And in fact, scientists could actually see some internal organs, including a chamber where the venom was stored. And they also found the anatomical feature they believe allowed the scorpion to breathe air. Now, it had neither gills nor lungs, but had a narrow hourglass-shaped structure similar to the circulatory and respiratory system seen not only in modern scorpions, but also in their ancient, uh, but still with us cousins, the horseshoe crab. And so they, were, they believed they were able to breathe and travel on land in the same way that horseshoe crabs do today. Wendriff notes that the scorpion was found in what was an ancient nearshore environment with other organisms that lived in the ocean, but the preserved respiratory and cardiovascular systems in the fossil were just like modern scorpions, which live on air, which live on land and breathe air. And so this ability to live on land and in the sea places it at the very beginning of the colonization of land by sea creatures. And 
not only is it amazing for all of that, but really it's amazing in some respects to see that the basic form of the scorpion evolved during that first transition of animals from the sea to the land and basically has changed not all that much in the intervening hundreds of millions of years. And again, just to um, put it out there that this is not a knock against evolution. Um, you know, I, I hear the cry of the coelacanth every time um, <laughs> this kind of idea comes up. Uh, you know, once an organism has found a form that works for them, unless there's outside pressures affecting them, um, they can retain that form. The, the point is to um, continually refine to become more fit. And if scorpions are doing just fine in the way that they're built now, there's no reason for them to change. Um, and that's not a, you know, evolution doesn't have to be constantly working. If scorpions are doing okay, and scorpions are doing okay, usually, um, you know, it's a pretty potent uh, package with the, uh, you know, really hard uh, chitinous exoskeleton and the, you know, venomous uh, tail uh, whip, you know, they're, they're doing okay as far as a um, body plan. So I don't really think they need to uh, do much adapting. And so they've basically stayed the same way since they were back in the Devonian. So yeah. All right. Let us take a few minutes and then we are going to uh, move forward in time um, to talk about a dinosaur <laughs> that is helping researchers to better understand the so-called phantom evolutionary leap between feathered dinosaurs and modern birds. But let us take a few moments for some PSAs and show promos before that. Hang on for just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We'll have all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2am Sunday morning. Check us out. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! <coughs> you will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? <coughs> Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? <coughs> Help us, Sassy! <coughs> 
why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at thatsnotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Okay, we are back, and you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio on WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. Okay, so again, we're moving forward in time to talk about dinosaurs. A fossil found over a decade ago in China, nicknamed the Dancing Dragon, or Wulong Bohiensis, from around 120 million years ago, has features of both dinosaurs and birds. Now, the fossil is extremely well-preserved, which is very nice, and comes from the Zhuifotang uh, formation, which is part of the Zhihol group, which is known for a large variety of animal fossils and is one of the first habitats where dinosaurs birds and bird-like dinosaurs all existed at the same time. And so researchers from the U.S. and China believe that the fossil is one of the basal forms of velociraptors, one of the first relatives of this more well-known dinosaur. Now, just as an aside, whenever velociraptors are brought up, I feel the need to talk about this. Uh, Velociraptors would have been more around the size of a chicken. Uh, So what was called velociraptors in Jurassic Park, uh, in the Jurassic Park movies, that was actually a, um, that was kind of a a snafu that they then had to carry on because you can't really, and then of course there's a whole explanation about how they're not really just dinosaurs. Anyways, uh, they were actually more closely patterned on a real dinosaur, um, but it was Utah raptors. And so that's the kind of uh, person-sized dinosaur that was like a velociraptor, but the scale is more like a Utah raptor. Okay. Now, this animal would have been smaller than a raven, but larger than a crow, uh, which I think is a great uh, description. And so it would have looked like a tiny feathered raptor, but with four wing-like limbs and a very long double-plumed tail. 
The specimen has feathers on its limbs and tail that we associate with adult birds, but it has other features that made us think it was a juvenile, said paleontologist Ashley Proust from the San Diego Natural History Museum. Now, we once thought that feathers were only found on true birds, but through a series of new fossil finds in the last couple of decades, um, including many from this same area, we now see that many avian features evolved much earlier than the first true birds, and in fact, some may even have evolved before dinosaurs. And it turns out that velociraptor embryos are said to look almost identical to the world's first bird species. And so examining the Wulong species, the researchers found that the animal was probably about a year old, despite having those adult-looking feathers. The presence of such elaborate structures in the similarly sized, relatively somatically immature Wulong demonstrates that non-avian dinosaurs had a very different strategy of plumage development than their living relatives, the authors write in the anatomical record. Now, most modern birds don't develop feathers until later in development, especially their tail feathers, which are largely used in mating displays. However, Wulong's tail, which almost doubles the length of the animal, developed early, well before sexual maturity. Either the young dinosaurs needed these tail feathers for some function we don't know about, or they were growing their feathers really differently from most living birds, explains Proust. And so they actually compared the bones to another dinosaur, one from the Cyanornithosaurus genus, get there, and found that this animal also had large adult-looking bones, but which were also found to be actually those of a juvenile. And so um, as an aside from the sort of things that they were talking about more generally about this animal in terms of its connection to birds, they also made a sort of other um, point about the way that people need to actually look at these bones. And so they suggest that the team, this suggests to the team that making determinations of age based only on the observation of a skeleton rather than the bone histiology, which is to actually examine the structure of the bones themselves, may not be determinative. And so even though it might be a little bit weird to say that you need to kind of, um, and, you know, it might be semi-destructive to Um, take a bit of the bone apart to look at it, it's actually much more, um, you you have a much better chance of getting a um, true picture of how old the animal would have been than simply just looking at it. Because if something looks like it's from an adult, um, you know, it may fool you if it actually is from a juvenile. The new dinosaur fits in with an incredible radiation of feathered, winged animals that are closely related to the origins of birds, says Proust. Studying specimens like this not only shows us something sometimes surprising paths that ancient life has taken, but it also allows us to test ideas about how important bird characteristics, including flight, arose in the distant past. 
Now, one of the things that I always like to remind people is that even though we talk about dinosaurs and birds, birds still are very much characterized as dinosaurs. They are avian dinosaurs. And so um, that is something that is fairly indisputable at this point. Um, Very few people, I think, no longer believe that Uh, birds are the direct descendants of uh, non-avian dinosaurs. And so it's very cool. The dinosaurs didn't die off. They just became birds who are also awesome. (laughs) So for all of those little kids who uh, love dinosaurs, they can love birds when they get older. Or they can continue to love dinosaurs. I love both. Uh, So that's not a problem. (laughs) Okay. Let's continue sort of talking about the dinosaurs. Let's actually talk, uh, move on to talk about the demise of the dinosaurs, obviously the non-avian dinosaurs. Um, And so this has long been debated, what caused the extinction of those non-avian dinosaurs. And so pretty much most uh, paleontologists now believe that the uh, Chicxulub impact crater definitely had something to do with it, uh, obviously. Um, A lot think that it really is a smoking gun um, that they had been looking for and that it explains what happened. But there have been other suggestions, including something called the Deccan Traps. And I'm sure that I've talked about this before. Um, And so that was a huge volcanic event. It lasted for literally tens of thousands of years. And both happened roughly at the 66 million year uh, mark, right around the KPG boundary. And so this refers to a band of rock that marks the transition from the Cretaceous to the Paleogene. Now, if you've been reading about dinosaurs for a long time, uh, you may remember when it used to be called the KT boundary, referring to the transition from the Cretaceous to the Tertiary. And so the tertiary now actually includes both the Paleogene and the Neogene eras. And so they just made it a little more precise. Now, the Deccan Traps were, again, a massive volcanic uh, event, and they absolutely impacted the global climate, at least probably. (laughs) Um, And so that's the big big, uh, question mark is, did they actually do it? Because it seems like it makes total sense that they would have done that. Um, and so for tens of thousands of years, volcano, excuse me, volcanoes in what is now India spewed a whopping 120,000 cubic miles of lava, uh, both onto the land and into the sea. Now, researchers, um, new research published in the journal Science suggests that this didn't really have a big effect on uh, the dinosaurs, that it really was the asteroid that killed them. And so the research, co-led by geologist Pinselli Hull from Yale University, suggests that while the volcanic activity did emit large quantities of carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide, which are both potent greenhouse gases, it was not enough to cause the extinction of the dinosaurs. A lot of people have speculated that volcanoes mattered to KPGE. I'm sorry, to KPG. And we're saying, no, they didn't, said Hull in a press release. And so uh, two papers released 
in 2019 reported on interpretations of the timing of the volcanic eruptions. Now, mostly they were in agreement with each other, with one notable exception, the output of the lava during the crucial period of the KPG boundary. The significance of this new study is not that the authors are saying something new, but that they present a solution to a previously outstanding problem, said Courtney Sprain, assistant professor at the University of Florida and a co-author of one of those previous papers, but who was not involved in the present work. Specifically, the authors sought to test which eruption scenario of the Deccan Traps best matches observed environmental changes in the deep ocean using a unique combination of modeling and data. This is significant because in order to understand the cause of the mass extinction, we have to solve these outstanding controversies. Now, Hull and her team ran a series of simulations to help determine when the outgassing from the Deccan Traps actually occurred, and they found that it best matched two paleo-temperature records that placed the majority of outgassing before the meteor impact. And so this suggests to the team that the majority of environmental effects would have already taken place and did not cause an extinction event. It was only the arrival of the meteor that caused the massive die-off to begin. Volcanic activity in the late Cretaceous caused a gradual global warming event of about 2 degrees, but not mass extinction, said Michael Hanahan, a co-author of the study and a former Yale researcher in the press release. A number of species moved toward the North and South Poles, but moved back well before the asteroid impact. They also analyzed deep-sea sediments from the North Atlantic, Pacific, and South Atlantic Oceans, which showed that the Deccan Traps did not have a large impact on marine life, and that there was actually a bit of a cooling trend during the time before the asteroid strike. Now, of course, how could the expulsion of such potent greenhouse gases have led to a cooling event? The paper suggests that the gases actually fundamentally changed the carbon cycle of the planet, and so the oceans actually absorbed a vast majority of that CO2. Therefore, it had the effect of hiding the warming effects of volcanism in the aftermath of the event, said Donald Penman, another co-author of the study and a postdoctoral associate at Yale University. Now, Sprain notes that the paper is very strong, but that there are still some unanswered questions. I don't think the cause of the end Cretaceous mass extinction is a closed book, she said. For one, there are still uncertainties in the carbon cycle model used in this study. In addition to uncertainties in the inputs used in models, such as the amount of CO2 released by the Deccan traps that, still, that need to be considered. So while I think this study made a significant step forward, there is still a lot of work that needs to be done to assess the role of the Deccan traps in the KPG mass extinction. It does, however, suggest positively that the Deccan traps likely contributed to the evolution of the animals who survived the KPG extinction event because they because it's so fundamentally changed the carbon cycle that that really um, had a large impact on the evolution of animals that uh, came after the extinction event. Okay, 
So we are going to move on now to another giant impact crater. Uh, this one is a 43 mile wide uh, impact structure in the Australian outback, which has now officially been given the title of oldest known asteroid crater at 2.2 billion with a B years old. And so research published in Nature Communications points to the Yarrabooba crater in Western Australia as the oldest on Earth, with an age of around 2.229, again, billion with a B, years old. The next oldest crater is the 120-mile-wide Vredefort Dome in South Africa, which is some 210 million years younger. And so first author Timmins Erickson from NASA's Johnson Space Center and Curtin University in Australia, along with his colleagues, have reported that the 4.3 mile wide asteroid actually plunged they think, into an ice sheet, which would have sent huge amounts of water vapor into the atmosphere and potentially caused a global rise in temperature. Now, the crater has been known for some time, but because of both its remote age and remote location, as well as the overlaying accumulated strata, it has not previously been dated with confidence. The original date ranged range from the team that discovered the crater back in 2003 was between 1.1 billion and 2.6 billion years old. They actually had a had a reading that suggested 2.23 billion years, but they actually thought that was an anomalous reading. It turns out that was the closest hit to the actual age of the crater. And so the new team looked at so-called shocked minerals, or neoblasts, extracted from the base of the heavily eroded crater. They looked mostly at zircon and monazite, which had been recrystallized due to the impact of the asteroid. Zircon and monazite are two of the most commonly used uranium-lead geologic clocks, Erickson noted, because their crystal structure can incorporate uranium but not lead when they crystallize, and uranium will decay to lead at a known rate, we can use the ratios of the uranium and lead isotopes to determine their age. Again, there are ways to to age very, very old rocks. Sometimes it's just easier to use the shortcut though. <laughs> and so the researchers looked at the parts that of the um, looked at the parts of the neoblasts that had been recrystallized by the impact in order to see when they had reset their clocks by kicking the lead out of the crystals during recrystallization. This led to a date of 2.229 billion years, plus or minus 5 million years. This is interesting because it dates to the end of what has been called by uh, researchers the so-called uh, globe earth, sorry, snowball earth. Um, and so this was basically a time when we hypothesized that the globe was basically covered in ice sheets. Approximately 2.4 billion years ago, life began to photosynthesize enough to change the composition of Earth's atmosphere, reducing the amount of carbon dioxide and methane, and increasing the amount of oxygen, said Erickson. 
This, coupled with increased weathering, resulted in cooling of the Earth's surface as evidenced by glacial deposits that span from 2.4 to 2.2 billion years ago. Because the Yarrabuba impact crater dates to the end of this period, the researchers decided to model the effects of the impact on water vapor in the atmosphere, or I should say creating water, vap water vapor into the atmosphere from what would have been uh, ice. They found that between 87 and 500 trillion with a T kilograms of water vapor would have been released into the atmosphere, which of course would obviously have had an effect on global climate. Uh, water vapor is an extremely potent uh, greenhouse gas, even more so than CO2. We postulate that a Yarrabuba-sized impact into an ice sheet would have released significant water vapor, uh, which again, is an even more efficient greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, Erickson wrote. If the residence time of water in the Earth's atmosphere was long enough, this could create significant warming of the planet's atmosphere. However, additional climate models are required to prove if it is a viable mechanism to warm Earth's surface, he added. Now, again, we want to be clear that there's no actual physical evidence. We don't have any real evidence to prove that there was an ice sheet at this site at this time, but the circumstantial evidence is rather compelling. Regardless, it is great that they were able to date the crater, and hopefully we will able, be able to find even older craters as time goes on. Okay, so let us move a bit forward in time again uh, for our last story to between 2 and 1.8 billion years ago, when single-celled organisms, bacteria and archaea, began to evolve into multicellular life called eukaryotes. And so eukaryotes now encompass most of the uh, life on Earth. Uh, animals, including humans, plants, and fungi all are considered eukaryotes. So we all have multicellular uh, um, existences. Now, we're still a bit murky on the details of just how that transition took place. Uh, less so than we are of how life began in the first place, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. <laughs> so researchers have hypothesized that a group of microbes called Asgard archaea were the first to make the switch to eukaryotic cells because they share certain genes with their more complex cousins. And so in order to test what these microbes looked like and how this might have happened, a group of Japanese researchers spent a decade collecting and analyzing mud from the seafloor in the Omine Ridge off the coast of Japan. Masaru K. Nobu, a microbiologist at the National Institute of Advanced Industrial Science and Technology in Tsukuba, Japan, and his colleagues managed to grow these organisms in a lab. They would take samples of mud containing microorganisms and put them in a bioreactor that mimicked the conditions where they had been found deep in the sea. Years later, they opened up the reactors and isolated microorganisms that had been growing in the mud. 
Now, actually, it turns out that they were initially looking to find microbes that eat methane in order to potentially help with cleaning up sewage. However, when they did when they did the testing on the um, cells, they found a previously unknown strain of Asgard archaea and switched to studying this in order to see if they could determine more about its composition. The new strain was named Prometheo archaeum sinotrophicum, after the Greek god Prometheus, who was said to have created humans from mud. They found that this archaea actually grows really slowly, doubling in size from 14 to 25 days. Um, in comparison, I think E. coli uh, doubles in size every, like, 25 minutes or something crazy like that. Um, so yeah, very slow. They confirmed that P. sinotrophicum had many genes in common with eukaryotes and even had genes that code for certain proteins found inside eukaryotes. However, they did not create any organelle-like structures such as mitochondria. On the inside, there's no structure, just DNA and proteins, said Dr. Nobu. Um, so again, not even a cell. That's the thing. Um, sorry, not even a nucleus. And that's the sort of big thing that's between um, archaea and um, between eukaryotes is that um, they single-celled organisms and um, archaea, they don't have uh, nucleuses. What they did have were long branching tentacle-like protrusions that they could use to snatch passing bacteria. In fact, the team found them sticking to other bacteria in lab dishes. They suggest that as the earth began to be dominated by oxygen, the original archaea would have been poisoned by this new element. They may have developed a way to stay alive by latching onto bacteria which had adapted to using oxygen. First as a symbiotic partner feeding on the archaea archaea's waste, and then later they would have engulfed them, and these would have eventually evolved into organelles like mitochondria. Now, of course, mitochondria is the key mechanism by which eukaryotes were able to diversify and create the life we see now on the planet. This is a great start to research, which might one day really be able to show us just how life moved from single to multicellular life. Though, of course, not everyone is convinced that this is exactly how it happened. Other researchers doubt the tentacle to engulfment solution and are dubious that a currently found archaea can really tell us everything about what happened billions of years ago. But as we keep exploring, we'll learn even more, and maybe one day we'll even be able to answer the question as to how life began on Earth. Okay, that's all for tonight. I will be back next week. Have a good week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy. <laughs>